Hello, can I please speak with David Yulin? This is. David, what a pleasure to have you on the phone. This is Paul Holdengraber calling you from the quarantine tapes. I'm so happy you could take the time for being part of this series. I'd like to ask you, David, what have you been up to for the last three or four months? Have you, have you spent all of that time in Los Angeles? I have basically spent all of that time in my, na- in my neighborhood and pretty much in my house. I have been um, a fairly serious uh, self-isolator and quarantiner during, um, during the, the lockdown and post-lockdown. Um, in fact, I've only really left, even left the neighborhood once or twice. Um, I, I, I'm lucky in the sense that a lot of my work has been translatable to working at home. In fact, you know, since I'm a writer, a lot of the work I was doing before the pandemic involved working at home, and I was I'm quite comfortable um, with that. And the teaching that I do has translated um, fairly fairly seamlessly to uh, to online environments. Um, and I'm also lucky because I've been able, you know, I'm living with other people. I'm living with my wife, my daughter, um, who's a college student who's been living with us since mid March. So I feel like I'm in a, the rare position of, ha- of being able to work and also having a kind of human community, um, a small human community, but a human community um, that surrounds me. And that has been hugely sustaining in, um, I mean, in ways that I knew it was sustaining beforehand, but the, the lockdown and the pandemic has really brought that into a kind of sharper focus. What have you been missing well, I mean, I've been missing a lot. I've been missing, obviously, sort of seeing people, seeing my friends. Um, I've been missing events. I've been missing restaurants. I've been missing um, sort of excursions. Um, primarily, the thing or the, 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 the person that I'm most missing is my son, um, who's, you know, who lives, who has his own place. And um, so doesn't live with us. And, you know, we have seen him. Um, he comes over periodically and we'll have a kind of socially distanced visit or dinner on the porch or something like that. Um, but I have not actually been able to, you know, hug him since um, middle of March. And that feels like um, that, feel, that, that feels like a burden to me at this point. And, and you said excursion before. Um, one of the things that is, is most remarkable about what you've written about, um, for me, having recently moved back to, to Los Angeles, is your, your book about walking in Los Angeles. Have you not been able to walk in Los Angeles in these parts? Oh, no, I walk. I walk most, I walk most days, um, five or six days a week. But, it, but I walk early. Um, it's a, I mean, it's an interesting question, and I've been thinking a lot about this, this question. I would, I would imagine. I would imagine you have. Um, but I get up early and walk at like 6.30 or 7 in the morning, mostly because I'm trying to avoid people. I'm trying to avoid people who aren't wearing masks, frankly. Um, and I'm trying to kind of keep myself as safe as possible. So I'm definitely out in the streets. And it is, it is as it has always been, a kind of centering mechanism, as, you know, as, as, as I think I wrote about in, in Sidewalking. Walking for me is, fulfills a number of functions. One of them is a meditative function, and that's still there. And I also find myself really sort of um, feeling connected in some way to the natural environment when I'm walking, you know, to, mm. to the trees, to the streetscape, to all of that. Um, when I say excursions, I mean going, you know, going to an event, going, getting on a plane, going somewhere. I was supposed to go to New York at the end of February for a variety of reasons, but one of them was to visit my parents who are in their 80s and who live there. 
And I had to postpone the trip because of um, some work complications. But by the time the new dates rolled around, we were in lockdown. So, you know, even something that I, you know, six months ago would have taken entirely for granted, get on a plane, go to New York, um, you know, see some people, visit with my family, became um, became impossible. And so that kind of excursion, that, that's part of what I mean by excursion. But, but has... Because you, you, you're such a, an observant walker. Um, has the experience of walking now and seeing what you see in Los Angeles changed? Has there been a, 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 a difference of perception in that centering that walking does for you? You know, it's, it's an excellent question, and I would have to say yes and no. In terms of some of the kind of mechanics of, or mechanics of how I use walking, um, no, because one of the, one of the things that I do, as I say, it has kind of meditative. Um, it has a kind of meditative effect. It's one of the reasons I do it first. Generally, do it early in the morning anyway, because it's a way of kind of centering myself in the day. And partly that's a, partly that has to do with sort of just sort of taking my own temperature, let's say, my own weather, and seeing how how I'm how I am feeling that day. Part of it has to do with sort of thinking about what the day is going to look like. You know, often on those walks, I'll spend part of those walks thinking about well, okay, what am I going to do today? What's the work day look like? And sort of kind of place myself in that sense. But it also has been a kind of communing activity. I don't want to say communal, but communing in the sense that it makes me feel part of the community, part of the neighborhood, part of the city. That's still there to an extent. Um, but in terms of the other people, I noticed all of us are kind of wary of each other at, at this point. We have to be, right? If you look at the latest statistics, um, coming out of, uh, of Los Angeles County, the infection rate is high enough that, you know, we're now being asked to assume that anybody we cross paths with out in the world is infected, whether they are or not. And so I'm really interested um, kind of intellectually, and I mean, emotionally is one thing, but I'm really interested intellectually in what that means um, for public space, for shared space, for kind of sense of shared destiny. All of these are the things that have always drawn me to cities and to city walking. And so When I'm walking, in part, it is what it has always been. And in part, it is a kind of exercise in confronting discomfort. Um, and I don't have a firm conclusion about what that means. I think about this a lot when I'm out in the street. What are some of the, the, the germs of this rumination? You know, because I've been thinking, too, about how extraordinary it is that we are all when we are all masked. And the, the fact that it's so hard now to be a good semiologist. It's so hard now to read signs. It's so hard to read expressions. And I heard something very interesting on the radio the other day that, you know, we read faces. We read faces without, without the use of words. According to the psychologist that was on this show, uh, she said, you know, we read faces rather poorly. We misunderstand expressions rather often. Yet, we, in, in some sense, we are missing even that error we make all the time when reading faces. And I'm wondering if some of the ruminations you have had when walking and seeing people sort of fleeing you. I mean, I've noticed this so much. People sort of go to the other side of the street or, or move away or move their head away. I'm wondering what has gone through your mind since you're, you're, you're such a, one could say, it's a completely ridiculous term, but a professional walker. <laughs> well, I should say I am often the person who is 
um, avoiding, right? I mean, I'm often the person who is swinging out into the street to make sure that we're keeping six or eight or 10 feet of distance. Um, particularly if I'm engaging with someone who's running and, and breathing heavily. Um, I'm often the person who's turning my head if I'm, if I can't be, um, if I can't be distanced enough from that person. But what I've found is, I think this is a really interesting question. I think that, um, for me, we are, we, it makes sense that we would be bad at reading expressions and reading faces because so much of what I think we do when we're looking at people is project. And we sort of interpret, you know, that whole addressability question. We kind of um, interpret what we think they, people, other people are saying or meaning or how they're behaving. But often that's a projection of how we are um, thinking or meaning or, or behaving. Um, so I think you're. I think that I think that, that that you're right in a lot of ways. Even when we can see each other's faces in full and read those faces, we read them inaccurately or incompletely. Let's say, um, you know, for me, one of the things that I've come quite attuned to in, tor- in sort of, in sort of reading or trying to read other people is looking at their eyes mm. because the eyes are not uh, are, are are not covered. I also have found that I take deep comfort and I'm sympathetic to people who I see wearing masks and I'm deeply un, or deeply unsympathetic to people who I see not wearing masks. And so I find myself making those kinds of, um, I don't know if we want to call them moral judgments. I mean, for me, they feel like moral judgments on people I know nothing about just simply on the basis of whether they're wearing a particular piece um, of attire or not. And I think that's interesting. In the bigger, you know, the bigger question for me is what does city life look like right. um, as we move through this right. and as we, as we move out of it? Because I'm firm, I'm a firm believer in the idea that there isn't, it's not like all of a sudden we're going to snap back to normal and we're, and this is just going to be a sort of bad dream or a kind of, you know, way station on our path. Hopefully this not. Is a fun, Hopefully this is not. a fundamental shift. This is a fundamental shift. And so the question for me is, what does it mean? My son is a lighting designer who works in the theater. Um, he and I have been talking about this. What does the theater look like? Just as an argument, like the experience of the theater, not the physical theater. What does the, the, the experience of going to the theater look like in a year and a half, let's say? If best case scenario, there's a vaccine and we're kind of returning to some kind of quote unquote uh, more normal, um, more normal life, right? What does that look like? What does travel look like? What does the park look like? What does the street look like? One of the things that I'm quite um, intrigued by and kind of optimistic about is this notion of slow street. Um, you know, city of LA, other cities are doing this now to encourage people to have some kind of pedestrian space. And some of those temporary slow street zones, uh, not in Los Angeles yet, but in cities like Seattle, are becoming permanent. So that they're creating um, street spaces where there won't be cars. That's a really interesting development. I think a long overdue development. If the pandemic pushes cities to start thinking about its streets in that way, I think that could be a, a sort of inadvertent positive aspect of the pandemic. I also think that in terms of this context, we can't have this conversation without talking about the protests <clears throat> and BLM and all of those, um, which are which have been a kind of reactivation of the streets in the middle of a pandemic. Yes. Um, deeply, deeply important. And also one of the things or one of one of the movements that is giving me profound optimism in this moment of extreme terror. And so this idea that we're living in a complicated time that continues to be complicated, even though it has this now, now this kind of veneer of fear put on top of it, is both fascinating and in some 
strange way kind of comforting, if that makes sense. You know, not not necessarily in the sense that life goes on, but in the sense that maybe some real profound social change about how the way we the ways we interact with each other, the ways we use cities, the ways we the way who owns the street um, gets radically shifted because we are in a radical shift. There's no question on all sorts of levels. Let's stay with Los Angeles, uh, with Los Angeles, which you know so well and have written about so eloquently, David. I first of all, I in everything you've just said, I see a new David Yulin book. <laughs> but I do, coming out of, you know, not utopian, but a new configuration of the city, um, a new way of thinking the city, a new way of feeling the, the city, a new way of being touched by the city. And coming back to what you said in, in closing there was the notion of who owns the street. Now, streets are highly complicated spaces in Los Angeles, as we well know, uh, Pedestrians are not always the most welcome. And I don't want to direct the question too much, but how can Los Angeles change um, through what has happened now? I mean, we're still in the midst of it, but let's imagine David Yulin and I are having this conversation in six months. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think, it's, again, I, I, I think that's the question I keep asking myself. And as one you of walk, the reasons, as, as you walk, as I walk, or even as I, you know, I, I, even as I think, even I mean, I, I want to, I want, I, it, it's interesting, I don't know that I want to write a book about it. I do feel often in terms of Los Angeles that I'm, you know, the sort of Michael Corleone character <laughs> in the, in the Godfather three, you know, the more, the more I try to get out, the more they pull me back in. <laughs> But I'm sorry. Um, but it's a question that I ruminate on because I don't know the answer to it. And those are always the questions that are most interesting to me is, you know, the possibilities are endless. I mean, I think Los Angeles prior to the pandemic was in um, a profound process of transition in terms of how we think about streets and public space, how we think about public transportation, how we think about shared space, which is a version of public space, but not exactly the same, um, in, in, in terms of how we want to balance pedestrianism and the automobile, for instance. Um, and I think that that conversation is not finished and will continue. But the the dynamic of the pandemic and the dynamic the dynamic, frankly, of the disease has to change the way that we're we're thinking about this. I find it really interesting as an example that at the end of March, when we were all really really in lockdown, <clears throat> uh, the city of Beverly Hills voted, or the city council in Beverly Hills voted to close down a stretch of Wilshire where Metro was building a subway station for several days so that they so that Metro could expedite the construction of that subway station. So in a sense, it was the sort of um, work in service of the future of Los Angeles taking advantage of the crisis confronting contemporary Los Angeles to continue building the infrastructure for the future. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know yet what that means. I'm thinking about this stuff all the time. I will some notes, but I, not not but no conclusion yet. I'm just kind of sitting with it. I will check in with you again. Now, your your book, The Myth of Solid Ground, opens with an epigraph which has haunted me for quite some time by Dennis Johnson, where he says, but everything is like we think it is. Don't you get it? Out of the million little things happening on this beach, you can only be aware of seven things at once, seven things at any given time. We never really get the whole picture, not even a microscopic part of it. Our delusions are just 
as likely to be real as our most careful scientific observations. At a moment such as this one, such as the one we're living through now, what does this passage that you quoted evoke for you at this moment? Well, I think so. (laughs) I'm so happy you asked me about this. That passage has haunted me since the moment I read it in early 1991. It's from from Johnson's novel, Resuscitation of a Hanged Man, uh, which takes place in Provincetown. Uh, before I ever lived in Los Angeles, I was living in New York when I read that novel, and it was the first Johnson novel I'd ever, the first work of Johnson's I'd ever read. And that passage was the passage that made me fall in love with him as a writer. Um, because I do believe that is, I mean, I believe deeply in the kind of subjectivity of experience. I do believe in science and fact, and um, I don't believe that, you know, I believe opinions, everybody's allowed to have an opinion, but they, they, need to, they do need to be backed up. But I think that, you know, what Johnson's fundamentally talking about in that passage, which is as true now, I don't think it's any truer because of the pandemic. I think it was always true. And the pandemic is a kind of expression of its truth rather than a kind of um, shift, let's say, in its truth, is that we never know what's coming. We never know what's happening. We think we're on top of things because we're paying attention and our antenna are up and we're rational beings and we're trying to chart our course. But we're only noticing what we're noticing. And so, you know, I mean, I notice this, let's just say, even in personal relationships, you know, Mm. I will uh, be having a conversation, let's say, with my daughter, and she'll say something, and I will kind of brush it off because it it doesn't quite register on uh, on me. And then about five minutes later, I realize something she's really worked up about, or vice versa. Right. And I think, you know, we're always kind of, again, coming back to this notion of projection, we're always projecting our own sensibility on the world that we walk through. Um, you know, the experience is neutral, we could argue. Um, and, but what, and what isn't neutral is our reaction to experience. I think that is where narrative gets created. And I think narrative is both, um, you know, highly, not, a, not even useful, necessary, but also false narratives can be quite dangerous. And, you know, and I think it's always a double-edged sword about what, what's actually out there and what we're perceiving is out there. Um, I, I think we can never be too conscious of our own sort of biases. And, and um, what I found particularly interesting about the Dennis Johnson, first of all, seven things. I love the precision of it. I and love it. Too. I love the precision in the imprecision. I can't right? tell you how many times that happened. It's so um, great. No, stuff. it's really yeah, so yeah. great. I mean, it's so great. And again, it goes back to how we read a face, how we read a situation. Um, you know, I I've been thinking a lot recently of Irving Goffman and the presentation of self in everyday life and how yep. we present ourselves to the world. He has this wonderful chapter called Staged Authenticity. We offer a certain face to the world. But I, I, I can't uh, resist asking you about the work you've done recently, two works you've done recently, um, one that is fairly recent and one that is recent, recent. Fairly recently, you've edited the first volume for the Library of America of Joan Didion's um, uh, work. And I'm wondering, with all the time you spent immersed in, in the work of Joan Didion, has it changed in some way the way you're looking at this present moment? And I know you love this notion in Joan Didion, which I love too, of what she calls her tiny universals. Yes. I mean, I think it's interesting because I'm now actually um, in the middle of working on the second volume. Yes, uh, I would imagine. The, which is coming out in, in, in spring of 21. So I'm kind of re-immersed in Didion. It's a different sort of period of Didion. But um, I think... 
Hmm, how would I put it? I, I think that, you know, for me, the question is, Gideon talks about a kind of mechanistic relationship with the world, right? She, I mean, she's talking about, when in, in the, you know, in the first volume, which is the first five books, so a lot of the California writing, <clears throat> she writes about, you know, sort of the, the, the natural world in California or in Southern California, Santa Ana winds, fires, floods. She doesn't, you know, Gideon doesn't obsess about earthquakes that much, which is kind of an interesting um, aspect of her work, because I would, I would imagine that she would. But, you know, that's sort of the imposition of the natural world on the human, uh, on human ambition is a key factor in how Gideon reads California. And because she is an abiding influence on me, it's become a key lens for me as well. Um, and, but I do think it's, it's, it's worth our looking at, especially in this moment, because what she means is, you know, if you read Los Angeles Notebook, for instance, which is an essay in Slouching Towards Bethlehem, where she has that famous, her long famous riff on Santa Ana yeah. and fire, yeah, yeah. you know, what, what you get out of that is that, you know, what, you know, what's the adage, right, man, humans make plans, God laughs, um, you know, that's what she's saying, although she's not making it a theological argument, she's making it a kind of, uh, a kind of geological or meteorological, that there are natural forces at work that determine how we interact with each other and what our, what our circumstances are as much as any of our own sort of human um, drive, right, or ambition. And I think that what we're seeing with the pandemic is that writ large. At the very beginning of the pandemic, I was uh, got fascinated and, and wrote an essay about plague literature, particularly in my case, just because I wanted to focus on a couple of books, focusing on Camus, The Plague, and a little bit on Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year. And one of the things that I, I drew from that work is that life goes on, right? The pandemic is not a pause. It's a crucible. And we move through it. As we move through anything, our lives go on. We're continuing to age. We're continuing to have to deal with whatever we're dealing with in our personal relationships. We're continuing to work. We're not putting our lives on hold for six months or a year or two years, but figuring out how to navigate our lives in this period with this set of conditions. And I think that that's a lesson that, 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 Didion, um, that Didion taught me in, uh, in a number of ways and continues to teach me. I think that that's her worldview. When she talks about the collapse or the breakdown of narrative, she's not talking semantically about, you know, um, some postmodern question about narrative. <laughs> right. Yeah, she's far, talking far about, you know, it. we tell ourselves stories yeah. in order to live until they stories can't sustain us. And then we either die or we tell ourselves new stories. And I think that that whole notion has been really, um, you know, highlighted or is really highlighted in the, in the situation that we find ourselves in now. Um, you know, you, you've said that books help you keep an eye on the long view, uh, which, yeah. which I think in a way you've illustrated now. But how so? Because, you know, in a way, reading this literature, this plague literature and Camus in particular, you know, that's sold out 60,000 copies in Italy in the first two months. I mean, it was just <laughs> yeah, extra, <no>. extra, <laughs> extraordinary. I mean, it, it helps us in some ways make sense of this moment. But what does it even mean, uh, David, to make sense of this moment? For, for me, it means for me it means that we make sense of the moment by not making sense of the moment. And mm. for me, it means that rather than thinking about this moment as anomalous, it's anomalous. To, it, it's not even anomalous to us. It is anomalous to us in a certain sense. But you know, even those of us who are of a certain age have lived through a number of, of, of pandemics and crises. Um, you know, think about AIDS. Um, sure. So you know. It, it is not 
what, what, what reading, you know, what reading Camus or Defoe or looking at the Decameron or, or whatever it is, or looking at the history plague of various plagues tells us is that plague or the virus or whatever it is, is the constant condition. Right. And that this isn't an anomalous moment in the sense that, you know, it's, it's unprecedented. Nobody's ever gone through this before. That's not true. You know, almost everybody has gone through some version of this, and in some cases in, in, in ways that much more awful than this. And that is not at all to minimize how awful this is. This is awful. But there is a kind of weird solace I take from that long view, from that sense of humanity, of being part of humanity, of knowing that other people over centuries, hundreds of millions of other people have lived in these and right. lived through these situations or died. In right. Situations. You know, David, this reminds me so much. I can't quote it from memory, which is rare for me, but something of the sort that Baldwin said, you know, that you think your your pain is, is uh, has never been experienced before. And then, right. and he says, and then you start to read. Then you start to read. That's exactly. I, that, I, that's a, it's a terrific, and that's exactly right. And there is so there is something. I don't know. I mean, for me, it's consoling. Not in the sense that it's like, oh, this is all fine, but in the sense that the sense of the community again, right. and the community being bigger and extending further across generations and centuries. The human experience, if we want to use a cliche. But I think of it in those, I do think of it in those terms. And so there is definitely some kind of consolation or some kind of strength maybe or connection that I draw from the accounts, whether fictional or otherwise, of prior versions of this in some way because it, it, because it reminds me that this is universal. This isn't being, this isn't happening to us. It is happening to us, but it happens to everybody, or it happens yeah. to most people. You know, it gives you it's a, human. It's, it's, it's part well, of the, it's part it, of what we do. It gives you a sense of 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 history. You're not the the first man or woman on this planet. In in Los Angeles, we also do have our monuments, um, even if there's an erasure of history and some some of the history is buried or largely invisible. I I'm I'm sure that you've been following the whole uh, debate. Um, about monuments at this very yeah. moment. And, yeah. and what kind of monument would you like to see at a place like, let's say, Union Station in Los Angeles? Well, I think if you're going to have a monument at Union Station, it has to be a monument to the Chinatown that they said that was, you know, that was that was torn down, um, that was, you know, eminent domain and torn down and all of the Chinese um, and Chinese-American um, workers and residents who are displaced. I think, you know, if you want to start thinking about monuments, you know, for me, Union Station is a loaded location because it's one of my favorite buildings, but its history is so awful and so virulent, or it's kind of backstory, let's say, it's so awful and so virulent. Um, so if you want to have a relevant monument, I mean, you know, this is something we could actually do, create relevant monuments at locations. Um, but I also want to suggest that maybe we should be thinking in terms of moving beyond monuments. Like I'm, you know, I don't, um, I mean, I understand some of the, you know, the history of monuments and the, and the kind of cultural or political necessity, I don't even know how to say political, but the cultural necessity of certain monuments. Um, like if you read Jeff Dyer's book, um, about World War One, his sort of dissection of the kind of, you know, healing power of the monument post war, right? The Missing of the Sum is, is the name of the book, is really, really insightful um, in terms of why monuments, what monuments mean and why they are necessary at certain points. But I think at a, you know, I think in a way we may be beyond, at a moment where we are beyond monuments. Um, 
you know, unless we want those monuments, as I say, to reflect the people who were overlooked and disregarded and erased from history and whose homes were erased and whose livelihoods were erased in, in the service of something that had nothing to do with them. That's another, I mean, you could put a, a monument to all, outside of Dodger Stadium to all of the, you know, um, residents of Chavez Ravine who were evicted right. so, so the stadium could be built. Um, you know, I think that we if we either need to do away with monuments or rethink what a monument means. Um, David, in closing, and so sadly, might I say, I want you to comment on on a, a very brief quotation, which I think I have in my memory, of June Jordan, who said, poetry is a political act because it involves telling the truth. <laughs> it's absolutely, it, June Jordan is absolutely correct. Um, you know, what does Orwell say that the position that literature or that art should not be political is itself a political position? Right. I think that there is no, I, I mean, I, you're talking, I believe that breathing is political. I don't think there is a way to move through this socialized world. Maybe if it was a natural world and we were all, you know, we were living in Eden again, but there is no way to move through this socialized world without being aware of the politics of everything. And I, um, and I, I think about that all the time. I imagine. Uh, David, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Stay safe. Uh, continue to take your morning walks. I hope someday that I can take a very, very long walk with you through the city. And learn I would it, very much enjoy that. And learn, it, learn a little bit about it through your eyes. Um, in the meantime, thank you so much for being part of the Quarantine Tapes and take good care and stay safe. Thank you, Paul. You stay safe as well. My best to you and your family. And thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.